John chapter 1, we will be in verses 1 through 5 as we begin the series. I apologize, the notes this morning were not the right set of notes. Um, I sent the wrong sheet, I believe, to be printed, and the wrong sheet was printed, and therefore the wrong sheet was distributed, and therefore nobody has the outline. So I will try to be, I, I hope I was clear this morning, and I will try to be very clear this evening. Actually, this evening's message is very conducive um, to a clear outlining to where um, if you wanted to follow along without the typical help, you should be able to do so very easily. As you have read through the four Gospels in the past, I trust you, most of us have, perhaps you have noticed that the Gospel of John is just a little bit different from the other three Gospels, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke approach the life of Jesus Christ from a very historical perspective in order that they might reveal the life and ministry of him to various groups of people, the Gospel of John is meant to introduce Christ not as a thorough compilation of all that he did upon this earth, but rather as a pointed overview of what he did and what he came to do. Now the purpose of the Gospel, we remember as we think back two weeks to the book sermon on this particular book, was clearly seen through its content, uh, but explicitly stated in John 20, verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And so we recall that the entire book of John, that everything that is relayed in the book of John, everything that we are going to read, is written with this particular purpose in mind that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, that He is the Son of God, and that in believing that Jesus is the Christ, believing that He is the Son of God, believing who He is, what He came to do, His truth claims, we might have life through His name. So the object of John's Gospel, the focus of every conversation, will be that the reader might know this one, Jesus Christ. John's purpose then is to introduce the man that we come to know as Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Now when you introduce someone, or when you approach someone to learn about them, how is it that you go about that? Now the younger people in this room might not have this whole method down yet, but by and large, when you go up to a person and you are introducing yourself and you want to start that relationship, you get the small talk going, maybe someone comes through the doors that we have never met before, three questions tend to come to mind. What is your name? Where are you from? What do you do? Right? What is your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And really, in those three questions, we can get a good framework of who a person is, of, of them. They are defined by who they are, where they're from, and what they do. And by and large part, that's what defines our lives. That is, in fact, how John is going to introduce Jesus of Nazareth in this epistle. But he's going to do it in a little bit of a different way. Now, Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. The book of Matthew. Therefore, it introduces Jesus Christ as the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is very, he particularly wants the Jewish audience reading the book to know that Jesus Christ is a descendant, a lineage of David, and, there, and by, and by that extension, a lineage of Abraham. He's a Jew. 
The Gospel of Mark introduces Jesus as the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, is how Mark begins, and sought to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic passages of the Messiah. The Gospel of Luke begins with a very thorough reckoning of the lineage of Jesus of Nazareth, both through the line of Joseph and through the line of Mary. He continues through Mary to reckon that genealogy all the way back to Adam. Luke is trying to show that Jesus Christ is a man. He traces that lineage not just back to Abraham, but back to Adam. Luke wanted to reveal the humanity of Jesus Christ to his audience. His audience was a Gentile audience, wasn't quite as interested in the fact that Jesus was the son of David or Jesus was the son of Abraham. Luke needed to show his audience that Jesus Christ was a man. He was the son of Adam. But notice how the Gospel of John begins. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. As John sought to introduce Jesus of Nazareth, he did so in such a way that it would be clear to all who read that Jesus was present in the beginning. That he was present before Adam. That he was present before creation. That he was God, very God. He is God, very God. He is God, has always been God, and always will be God. So, in John 1, 1 through 5, we are going to introduce ourselves this evening to Jesus of Nazareth, who we often refer to as Jesus Christ. And we are going to answer those three questions that we posed earlier. What is his name? Where does he come from? What does he do? So let's ask the first question. What is his name? We are all aware because of our familiarity with the Bible and its contents that the person who is being referenced in John 1.1 is in fact Jesus of Nazareth. Now we call him Jesus Christ. However, it is, it is important to understand that Christ was not his surname. Christ was not his last name. Christ was in fact his title. We may take that for granted. We call him Jesus Christ, but he was Jesus of Nazareth. He was Jesus from Nazareth, Christ, meaning the anointed one was his title. He is the Christ. His name is Jesus. But the Gospel of John doesn't begin by saying Jesus. It doesn't introduce us to Jesus by his name. It introduces us to one whom he calls the Word. Now we know that the Word is Jesus, and we'll find that very clearly as we get farther in John 1. Now the Greek word for Word, capital W-O-R-D as we see it here in John 1, 1 through 5, is the word ha-logos. Logos is the Greek word. The term logos was a word used in the Greek to designate the spoken word, that which comes from one's mouth as he speaks. So right now, what you are hearing from me is the logos, the word, the spoken word. But it wasn't just any words. Oftentimes, this word was used in the Greek to carry with it the idea of the completion of words, the sum total of an argument, the sum total of a thought. 
So perhaps at the end of my message, I take my message, I put it online, and it's called a sermon. That sermon would be considered my logos, my spoken, completed word on these particular five verses. That would be the sum total of my teaching for that particular message on these five verses. That would be the logos. In classical Greek, this word logos was often used as a banking or accounting term. When a person would balance their ledger, that ledger was referred to as the logos. It was referred to as the total reckoning of the financial transactions. They would look through those transactions and they would say, this is the logos. This is the, the complete financial record. It was also used in classical Greek to describe mathematical equations. When a person would be doing a mathematical equation and they'd finally get to the point where they go equals and they put their answer. And you could look at the beginning, the, the question, and then the ending, the answer, the, the problem and the solution. And that whole equation from beginning to end would be the logos, the entire reckoning, the whole spoken word of that problem. If we could put it this way, logos served to describe the complete expression of that which was being communicated. The whole sum of that which was being communicated. Now when the gospel references this Greek word logos, the word which means word in the New Testament, in terms of Jesus of Nazareth, he always adds the definite article, the word the in front. So he is not just word, he is the word, the word. He is the, the one spoken, completed communication, expression of that which is being communicated. So the next question is, as we read this and we see in the beginning was the logos, in the beginning was the word, we recognize that in the beginning was this complete expression of something being communicated what is it that was being communicated? Well, John is introducing the word, Jesus of Nazareth, as the definitive and final expression of God. I'll put it the way Paul did in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us, by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us that Jesus Christ has, is the final communication of God to man. He is the final spoken word of God to man. He is the logos. He is the word. He is the entirety, the essence of God's communication to man, the word of God. In the beginning was the word. When we call Jesus the Word of God or the Word, we are designating Him to be the sum total of God, the sum total of His communication. Jesus Christ, the Word, is the complete expression of God's character, of His nature, and of His will. But the Gospel writer did not stop there. He said, in the beginning was the Word. As the complete expression of God, the Word was also asserted to be God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is very important to understand what the Gospel writer is attempting to express here. This is very clearly seen in the Greek because the Greek word God at the very end here, the Word was God, 
does not contain the definite article. It lacks the the in front of it. Because it does not have the definite article, that means that it is not attempting to serve as identity. It is attempting to serve as essence, quality, or character. The Jehovah's Witness love this passage, and they try to use this passage, particularly the original Greek, to tell you that because the word God there does not contain the definite article, that that means he was not the God, but that Jesus Christ or the word was a God. They use this to try to describe Jesus Christ as a lesser God or as a created God, whereby God created Christ and then endowed him with deity or endowed him with powers, whereby making him a God. That is not what is happening in the Greek. You... They, they, can, they can argue with you to your blue in the face that that's what's happening. That is a misinterpretation of what's happening in the Greek. It, does, it could mean, the lack of definite article could mean that it is designating this God as one of many. But there's a construction in the Greek, and we're not going to get into it, that definitively states Jesus Christ here, or the word is being said to be God, but as well, when a word in the Greek lacks the definite article... What it means is it is expressing that to be in essence, quality, and character the same as that which was before, as opposed to being the identity. So here's where we're going with this. Say, Pastor, all of that went right over my head. Here's, here's the sum total of what we are trying to say here. Not only is the word the complete expression of God, but literally in essence, quality, and character, the word is God. If the definite article had been there, the word was the God, then the text would be asserting that Jesus Christ is God in the sense that their identity is the same. Now, we've talked about this a couple of times now in in referencing the Trinity. There are three persons to the Trinity. They are distinct persons. They are not the same person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons persons of the trinity if the definite article had been there then we would be muddying the water in saying that jesus christ is the same person as god the father when in fact as we look into the scriptures theologically we know that that is not the case jesus christ is the same as god the father in essence quality and character but god the father god the son god the holy spirit are three distinct persons one god so by Removing the definite article here, the scriptures are not attempting to teach us that Jesus Christ was one of many gods or that the word was one of many gods. It is attempting to highlight the reality that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that this second person of the Trinity, the word of God, is in essence, quality and character, God, very God, but is not in person the same as God the Father. That's what is being expressed here. That is why there is no contradiction when verse 1 can say that the word was with God and at the same time the word was God. See, because there is a fellowship element between the word and God the Father, but there is also a one God element between the Word and God the Father because they are distinct persons, therefore in perfect fellowship, but they are in essence, quality, and character, one God. This verse has so much theology in it. 
And if we read it properly, and thank the Lord God has given us a good translation of this verse, there is much we can learn about the character and nature of God. The perfect and complete expression of God is in perfect and complete fellowship with God, defining Him in essence, quality, and character to be God. Now immediately such an introduction should make us pay attention, should it not? A while back, my wife and I were at a charity dinner. And while we were at that charity dinner, we were getting to know those that were at our table. We were there with Jules and Mark. They had invited us to a hospital charity dinner for the new chapel wing that was going in there. And there were my wife and I and Jules and Mark, and then there were two other couples at our table. So we began getting in conversation with this one gentleman, and he mentioned that he had worked for the sheriff's department. Well, that always perks my attention because I was active in law enforcement for a number of years while I was in high school and then going on to get my criminal justice degree in college. And so I asked him, well, are you a uh, patrolman then? And he said no. And I was like, okay, this, you know, all right. Are you sergeant, lieutenant? And he said, well, I'm deputy sheriff. Oh, okay. And immediately the way in which I was interacting with him as a law enforcement officer changed. Because I realized that he was not a patrolman, he was a bigwig. He was a deputy sheriff. And immediately that's going to change the way that you interact with him. That I spoke with him, I wouldn't be talking to him about walking the beat anymore because he probably hasn't walked the beat in 20 years. He's a deputy sheriff. It's not what he does, he sits behind a desk. That changes the way I interact with him. Now when we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God... As John begins his gospel and he introduces us to this complete expression of God, this should change the way we approach this gospel. It should change the way we approach this one who is the Word. Oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just the son of David. He's not just the son of Abraham. He's not just the son of Adam. All of these ways in which we've been introduced to him. He's not just the fulfillment of the prophets. This is God that we're talking about. See, that's going to change our perspective. When we introduce ourselves, when we step into this book and we say, who are you? What is your name? And, and the name is the word. The word who was with God and the word who was God. That's going to immediately dictate how we approach this passage of Scripture. Let's ask our second question, not just what is his name. Let's ask secondly, where did he come from? What is his name? Where is he from? The gospel begins with the words, in the beginning. Now suppose we were to play a game. We kind of did a verse thing this earlier today, uh, earlier this evening with song where... You sing a song and then you kind of draw out from that song various passages of scripture. If I were to look at you and say the words and then ask you to finish the verse and I were to say the words in the beginning, what verse would you finish? Most likely the verse that would come to your mind is in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That's most likely what would come to your mind, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. Now, a few of you, since we're working on John 1, might come up with in the beginning was the word. But when the right or the reader of the day was going to approach the gospel of John, 
what the gospel writer wanted to pop into the head of the reader as soon as he read the first three verses was Genesis 1-1. The gospel writer wanted the reader to think in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. See, by using this term, in the beginning, in reference to the word of God, in reference to the Logos, in reference to this one who is God, John, the gospel writer, is creating a link between the word, this complete expression of God, and the time that was before time. The time that was before creation. Sometime we will study the book of Genesis, and when we, will do, when we do, we will find that this term, the beginning, is somewhat of a relative term. In the beginning, as it's expressed in, John, in, in Genesis 1.1, references the advent of time and space, which, like everything else, are created. Time is a created element. Space is a created element. And so in the beginning references the time when time began. But that doesn't mean there was not something else before time began. See, because we serve a God that is above time. We serve a God that is beyond time. We serve a God that has created time. And, and so when time began... God already was. In the beginning, at the moment time and space were created, the only thing that existed was that which was and is beyond time and space. And the only thing that is beyond time and space is the creator of time and space, Jehovah God. So when the gospel writer says, in the beginning was the word, he is stating unequivocally that the word existed at and before creation. The word was. He was there in the beginning. He was. This reality is further emphasized in verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. God was in the beginning. The word was in the beginning. Both were in the beginning. Two persons. One God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same, the word, was in the beginning with God. God the Father, the word of God, together at creation. Perfect fellowship with God and was God. What's his name? He is the word. Where does he come from? The beginning. Let's spend the last few minutes talking about what he does. What does he do? Verse 3 states, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shine, shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth in none. Verse 3 states, All things were made by him. That is the word. It emphasizes the word's creative force by asserting the negative as well that without him nothing was made that was made that would be like Brady standing up and saying I am the best football player ever and there has never been a football player better than me by stating the positive and the negative he is doubly asserting his assertion he is doubly confirming his assertion he is removing any possible contingency that there has never been a, or that there has ever been a football player better than him not just by saying I'm the best because if he were just to say I'm the best 
then you could get it in your mind that maybe he's saying he's the best of all those that have been playing right now, or he's the best of all the starters, whatever the case may be. But he asserts negatively, there has never been a better football player than me. And now we recognize that since the dawn of time, he's the best football player that's ever existed. That's what he's asserting. And so we see here not just the positive, but also the negative. In order that there is no room for contradiction, no room for error, all things were made by him. Well, someone could redefine all things, right? We can say all things, but redefine it. But we can't redefine it when we say, and without him was not anything made that was made. That means he was made and a part of everything. He was there. He, had, he, he was a part. This assertion should not be a new reality to us. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Did you catch that? By what? The word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Immediately we see the active participation both of the Son of God through the word and then the breath, the pneuma. That's, that's the word for Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So we immediately see that the Son of God and the Holy Spirit were both active in creation. Paul taught in reference to Jesus Christ in Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17... For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 clearly telling us as well that Jesus Christ is the creator. But it would suffice us, if, even if we didn't have Colossians 1, even if we didn't have Psalm 33, it would be sufficient for us to go back to the Genesis 1-1 passage and see that the word of God was the active agent in creation. Genesis 1-1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. As that concept is then elaborated upon in the scriptures, Genesis 1-3 says this, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The word of God went forth, and light came into being. The will of God was performed by the word of God through the power of the spirit of God. So God, the Father, wanted to create light. The word of God went forth and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the word of God. That is the second person of the Trinity creating light. And we recall that the, uh, in the creation of, of the uh, heavens and the earth that the spirit of God moved upon the waters. We see the active agent there, the spirit of God empowering that. Genesis 1.6 And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. He said. Genesis 1.9 And God said. Genesis 1.14 And God said. Genesis 1.20 God said. Genesis 1.24 And God said. Genesis 1.26 and God said, let us make man in our own image. The word of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, and the active agent of the creation of all things. And without him was not anything made that was made. So the word is his name. He was from the beginning. What does he do? Well, he was the originator of life. Without him was not anything made that was made. 
But notice he's not just the originator of life. In verse 4, he is also the source of life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And here we begin what will be the constant dichotomy. The constant dualism that we'll see throughout the entire Gospel of John. The contrast between darkness and light. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. We've seen this contrast in our Ephesians series, have we not? As we are, we're compelled to walk in the light. We are children of light. Walk in light. To avoid, to put off the darkness and to put on the light. Here we see that this one who was the creator of all things, who is in essence, quality and character, God himself is life. And this life is the light of men. And this light shined into the darkness. It comes up many times in scripture. And could be said to be one of those defining themes of God's revelation. Light versus darkness. But this verse also carries another theme. The two themes that we will see throughout the gospel. Light and darkness. But that theme will springboard into a second theme. And it is that... This light, this life, comes from the Word. And as it shines into the darkness, the entire theme of biblical history reveals that the darkness is rooted in mankind's heart, and by and large, the darkness comprehends it not. That word comprehend is a word in Greek which literally means to apprehend, to take, to grasp. It doesn't mean that they can't understand it. It means they won't understand it. It doesn't mean that they can't receive it. It means they won't receive it. It means that the light came into this world and they didn't grab hold of it. They pushed it away. And all throughout this gospel, what we will find is that there will be those who will accept the light and those who will reject the light. There will always be believers and unbelievers. That is the nature of man's nature. There will always be those that will reject the light. And so now our grand introduction is complete. What is his name? He's the word of God. The perfect and complete expression of of God in perfect and complete fellowship with God, defining him in essence, quality, and character to be God. Where did he come from? He was in the beginning with God. He was the eternal, coexistent, second person of the Trinity in fellowship with God at the beginning. And what does he do? He is the creator of all that lives. But as Colossians 1 reminds us, he is not just the creator of all, but he is the sustainer of all. He is not just the origin of life. He is the source of life. He is not just the one who gives us our breath and keeps us alive. He is the one that has the means by which we can receive eternal life as the light of the truth of God, as perfectly expressed through the word of God, shines into this world, and the darkness comprehended it not, apprehended it not, 
I didn't want anything to do with it. That is the introduction to this one that we'll be looking at. He hasn't been introduced yet in the gospel. We will not see his name for a few verses yet. But we know it to be Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's approach this gospel with that understanding that we are approaching a gospel revealing to us the Logos, the spoken word of God, God himself. And let's give it the gravity, sincerity, and authority that it deserves. Let's pray.